Welcome to Worldview. From WBEZ, I'm Steve Bynum, in today for Jerome McDonald. When I came to work this morning, I saw that our drinking and bathroom water was a little cloudy. And that's apparently just because the city of Chicago had to shut the water off to Navy Pier for emergency maintenance. So for 12 hours, we haven't had safe drinking water or water to wash with. But that's really not a big deal because any person living in the Gulf state of Yemen could be one of the 16 million people who lack access to safe drinking water and sanitation. Another 17 million people in Yemen are food insecure. Those are people who are starving or at risk of starvation. And 16.4 million people lack access to adequate health care. Those are numbers from last December. Illinois has a total population of around 13 million. What the United Nations calls the worst humanitarian catastrophe in Yemen started after civil war erupted in the country soon after the Arab Spring, and it's only been worsened by constant bombing campaigns led by Saudi Arabia. But we have a couple of Chicago-based physicians who want to do something about that and extend care and health to the people of Yemen. I'm joined by our our friend of the show, Dr. Zahir Salul, who is a Chicago-based critical care specialist, and he's president and co-founder of the humanitarian NGO MedGlobal. Welcome, doctor. Thank you, Steve. And also with us is Imran Akbar. He is an anesthesiologist who leads MedGlobal's surgical program, and he's also on a number of committees that are doing great work in Bangladesh for the Rohingya people. Welcome, doctor. Thank you for having me. Well, the first question I want to put out there is that if you're in Chicago and you're listening about this catastrophe that's happening halfway across the world, why should people care? I think because people in general care about uh, the victims of catastrophes. Uh, we are in the most generous country in the world. I re- genuinely believe that um, people in Chicago and the un- United <clears throat> States care about what's the happening in the rest of the world and they want to do something because governments failed because the United Nation is not the perfect system. So people like uh, Imran and uh, Dr. Noor Akras, who was with us, Dr. John Kaler in Yemen before also, they want to do something to help the people in Yemen and other places of the world. And we have the capacity. We are blessed to have abundance of everything in Chicago. The best technology, the best doctors, the best expertise, wealth, and we have to give back to the world. Dr. Akbar, your opinion on it? You know, to to some extent, I feel, you know, as the world becomes more globalized, um, you know, the the very things we do and, you know, what we consume and, you know, the actions that we take either as a nation or as individuals seem to have effects all over the world. So I think in some ways we're almost responsible for what happens halfway across the world, indirectly in some way or another. So I think that's one aspect of it, and not just to mention the fact, the humanity of it. I mean, human beings, whether anywhere in the world, I think deserve the, 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 the same type of care that we have here in this country. And Yemen is the worst humanitarian crisis in uh, our time, according to the United Nations. And Dr. Salou, can you talk a little bit about how we got to this point, what led up to the point where we are now? Unfortunately, it is the man-made disaster, as they say. It's a war uh, that started between the Houthi rebels and the rest of the um, uh, Yemenis, supported by a coalition of Saudi Arabia and other Arab countries, and of course, by the United States. Uh, the Houthis are supported by Iran. And because of this war, there was blockade uh, on goods that are coming to Yemen, and that led to starvation in many areas. And who in initiated Yemen. that blockade? Uh, the blockade was initiated by the coalition led by Saudi Arabia because they wanted to prevent weapons from coming to the Houthi hands. But at the same time, they prevented humanitarian assistance, um, whether it's an, an intentional or intentional. That's something that we do not know. But that led to displacement of population, that led to starvation, that led to the disintegration of the public health care system, uh, to an epidemic of cholera. One million people in Yemen had cholera. Um, and also led to that uh, many people in Yemen, 22 million actually, two-thirds of the country, are independent right now on aid. Um, 400,000 children have severe malnutrition, and that means they are 10 times more likely to, da- to die because of disease uh, related to that. So you have about, wow, that's amazing. I mean, there are 28 million people in the state of Texas. That's the second largest state in the United mm-hmm. States. And you have as many people in Yemen. And you have these many millions of people who mm-hmm. are either starving, food insecure, a million people dealing with cholera. Mm-hmm. So getting into Yemen is such a difficult thing. It was a difficult thing that you spoke about in December when you were last here, mm-hmm. when you um, took a number of physicians over there 
talk about those logistics again and has the situation changed at all? Um, it's actually one of the most uh, difficult countries to access. Uh, and there are some areas that you cannot access it at all. I mean, we were able to access uh, two cities. Uh, we had three missions. Uh, one of them called Ma'rib. It's an old city. It's actually mentioned in the Bible. Uh, the Queen of Sheba was there at one point. Mm. Uh, and the other city was Eden uh, in the south uh, south port of, uh, of Yemen. Um, there's only one airline that go to Yemen, uh, which is Yemeniya airline. Um, and uh, their schedule is not uh, fixed or regular. Um, you have to take a long trip after you reach the um, um, airport in Sayoun, which is in the east side of the country, to reach Ma'rib. Uh, it took us about 8,000 uh, hours. It felt <laughs> like 8,000. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like 8,000 because there was a sandstorm. Yeah. I mean, this is the monsoon season in Yemen, and there was a sandstorm. And uh, I don't know how we reached to, to Ma'rib, mm. but it was an adventurous trip and uh, it was very tough. I mean, uh, it was almost three days just to get there because you've got to fly to Cairo. And then there, there's only two ways to get in because all the airports are sealed. This either goes south to Aden, which is not safe right now. It's, you know, there's fighting going on or go all the way to the east into in, Sayun and then go by land. And then the, the land trek is, is not, it's not a, it's not an eight hour journey. That's very easy. And there's military checkpoints every, you know, 20 miles, um, you know, it's a rough desert road. And obviously there's the risk of, you know, attacks and, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, sure. uh, and so yeah. forth. And we actually had to do it with a military escort. Um, and not to mention that we took a considerable about, uh, amount of medication and supplies, almost $50,000 worth of supplies there. And those were seized in Cairo. And then we had to go through quite an ordeal to be able to get those back and take them with us. Now, that complicates things. If you're traveling with the military, that obviously makes you a target. So what were some of the security and safety concerns that you had when you were trying to get in? Well, I mean, it's, it's very important to have security uh, for NGOs and for doctors who are coming from the U.S. for a couple of reasons. The first one is the kidnapping by bad actors in, in, in Yemen. Uh, unfortunately, there are also extremists in Yemen, Al-Qaeda and Daesh, uh, ISIS. And um, if you're an American physician uh, and they know that, then you are one of the targets. So you have to have proper security. We had actually security uh, that was provided by the governance of uh, Ma'rib uh, because we've been there before and they wanted to make sure that we are uh, protected. Uh, we did not announce at all that we are coming, uh, also to reduce the level of, um, of harm. There was one um, physician or a humanitarian um, um, staffer who was killed just one week before we arrived in the city of Taiz. So um, the situation is not that safe. It's a war-torn uh, countries, and things happen. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum in for Jerome McDonald. You just listened to Dr. Zahir Salul. He is a Chicago-based physician and president and co-founder of MedGlobal. And Dr. Imran Akbar, who assists Dr. Zalul, he is the leader of MedGlobal's surgical program. So, um, Dr. Akbar, tell us about um, how you decided to get involved in this. And by the way, I also want to mention that in a few minutes, film contributor Milo Stalik will be on to talk about Ethan Hawke's new film, First Reform. Um, Dr. Akbar, tell us how you got involved with this program. Well, um, I've always had a um, strong interest in doing humanitarian work. Um, and actually, um, uh, you know, uh, when the whole Rohingya crisis started in Bangladesh about last year, uh, you know, I, w I went with the first Med Global mission there to assess the situation and, you know, to establish a longstanding clinic, which has uh, run very successfully and continues to do to uh, do so today. Um, and I was part of that initial uh, setup. And then from since then, I kind of got involved in other activities and other programs. And, you know, Yemen particularly had a particular need. And, you know, it's, it's a difficult place to get into. And, you know, one thing to mention is that MedGlobal is one of the few organizations that has access to this country or has been able to go there. Why is that? Well, I think the, the lack of access. I mean, it's it's a dangerous country. Um, getting in is not easy. Uh, not just the logistics, but getting the actual permission to get in from the uh, from the uh, the government, getting the visas to go, and so forth. And then obviously the logistics of actually getting there. So here, why has it been e easier for Med Global to get in as opposed to other organizations? I think uh, be, I mean it, it, it takes uh, a lot of preparation, and we uh, we are lucky to connect to the right people um, in Yemen uh, through a local NGO. Our modus operandi is to work with local organization 
and we established a contact with local NGO called Al Hayat, which is a Yemeni organization, and they helped us in the uh, logistics and transportation and security and also getting the visa. Uh, the Yemeni embassy in, in, in the U.S. also was helpful in granting our uh, physicians visa. It took some time and preparation, but we did. And whenever you establish the connection, it becomes easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you break the bear of fear. Uh, you get to know the people. You get to know more people inside and outside. They trust you. Uh, actually, the media covered our mission um, very well in Yemen. Mm-hmm. We had multiple, uh, and, and they were very happy that we have this Physicians from United States coming from Texas, from Chicago. We had also physician who came from the Netherlands, who's Syrian refugee in the Netherlands. He's orthopedic surgeon uh, who had experience in Syria and came now to help the Yemeni patients. So networking and community building is every bit as important as delivering the care. Exactly, like in Chicago, you know, yeah. you 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 start you go you go to the west side or south side, and sometimes you have these, um, you know, fear of the unexpected. You get to know people. Um, they are like me and you. Uh, they like healthcare. They like their children to grow uh, with hope and future. And then they trust you. And then you create connection. And this connection will last forever. Indeed, Dr. Akbar, can you tell us a story about um, a situation you encountered or a person you encountered that left an imprint on you? Um, you know, there's probably several. I, um, you know, uh, most, a lot of what we saw there was uh, trauma from the war. Uh, Marib is only about, I think, 60 miles from where the, the, the front lines are. And, you know, I, I do remember a patient who had come in uh, for a laparotomy uh, because uh, from a gunshot wound. And a uh, laparotomy uh, is? Yeah, is a, uh, an abdominal surgery, mm-hmm. an exploration. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he had to have some bowel taken out and so forth. And, you know, the hospital where we were in, unfortunately, didn't have all the basic ICU equipment that we needed. Um, and, you know, a lot of the drugs uh, that we need to, to take care of patients, some of the antibiotics and so forth, and you end up expiring later that night. And I kind of kept thinking, you know, if this was, if we were back home, you know, which happens plenty of times in Chicago, you know, this, the, you know, this young man would have been alive. Um, you know, um, you know, things like that. Um, you know, I, I think... Overall, the, the there was this patient who had the also um, kidney mass. Uh, who right, right. You know exactly. And you know we had a, we had a patient who we performed a radical nephrectomy on, which means we took out an entire kidney for for a large kidney tumor, and you know that was a case that would has never been done in Marib before because they never had the expertise to do it. You know generally, you know these patients would be sent to Sanaa in the past. Uh, you know which is the major uh, capital and w- which is now under siege, and you know people can't go there for these types of surgeries. So, I mean, these are, you know, medically, these are some, you know, notable, notable experiences. Uh, you know, the there was this report in The Economist uh, just a few weeks ago that uh, five billion people in the world do not have access to basic surgeries. Mm. Things that we take it for granted. You know, if you have a fracture, you will see an orthopedic surgeon the same day here. Um, people in Yemen do not have even access to pe- orthopedic surgeons uh, in some areas or ob surgeons who will operate on, pa- on women who are bleeding or uh, people who have appendicitis, they will not have access to surgeons who will operate and open their belly and take that the, append- the appendix. So sending surgical missions like this will help us also uh, addressing this gap in the healthcare. Dr. Salou, uh, in the few minutes that we have left, yesterday we interviewed a, cl- a licensed clinical social worker who's doing work, who actually through SAMS, you know, one mm. of your former organizations, and she's doing mental health in one of the refugee settlements uh, along the Lebanon-Syria border. And she spoke about how the, one of the worst challenges is having to deal with long-term care, the long-term damage. You know, you, you're in this triage situation where you're just trying to patch people up and get them to survive and live, but then they're going to have these challenges, people who are amputees and these other long-term situations that they're just not equipped to handle. So how do you see that going in Yemen? Um, like in other place with disaster, you will have to focus on the long term. Uh, we cannot just go and put a band-aid and leave. Uh, that's why we do not believe in MedGlobal that uh, when in one mission to mm-hmm. war areas. So we are there for training. We provide training for the locals, so training the trainers. We are there for, um, um, we send multiple medical missions. We establish connections so we can have clinics and hospitals in the future. We are sending medical supplies. We are sending medical equipment. Um, and um, one of the areas that we'll be focusing on uh, is also mental health because mental, most people who are psychologically traumatized 
in 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 a war uh, situation like in Yemen. I remember this child. Her name was Raida. She was like five years old. She had sickle cell disease. She had severe malnutrition. She was in the ICU in Ma'rib Hospital. Um, she had flat effect. I tried to make her smile. She could not smile because of the psychological trauma that she uh, sustained in the war. And I think addressing these issues are very important in a war situation. Dr. Zahir Salul and Dr. Imran Akbar are from Med Global. We're talking about the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. In a few minutes, we'll talk to Milo Stalik about the Ethan Hawke film, First Reformed. Dr., we're in hurricane season, which begins today. Med Global also does work in Puerto Rico. Um, the news says that a Category 1 storm is enough to knock power out to all of Puerto Rico. And there's a good chance that Puerto Rico is going to get at least one big storm this year. Can you talk about the work that you're doing in Puerto Rico and what do you think the needs will be there? I was in Puerto Rico uh, after the Hurricane Maria and it was a devastating uh, hurricane, as everyone knows. Um, there was no electricity for a long time. We had stay in an apartment. We were a group of nine physicians uh, in um, partnership with Project Hope, another NGO. Um, and uh, the temperature was 100 degrees, um, and uh, we went to many areas that patients do n- did not have access to hospitals, to doctors, or medications. Uh, so we, tr- we treated hospitals in community centers, in churches, and uh, people who are suffering more are people who have chronic diseases um, in, in Puerto Rico and other places. Patients who have hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, and they do not have access to medications and doctors. Uh, if things like this happen again in Puerto Rico, then that would be um, the, the much need. And uh, we are ready to, again, uh, send medical missions uh, with Project Hope to Puerto Rico if that happened. And we just had adjusted numbers that around 4,500 people died as a result of not having access to adequate health care as opposed to the former official number of 65 deaths attributed to Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. It is unfortunate that we are living in the most powerful country in the world and we are talking about uh, a place uh, in the United States that people did not have access to medications or electricity even a long time after the end of the hurricane. That should not happen. Dr. Zahir Salul, thank you so much for your work and your continued work in Yemen. Also, you've done work with Rohingya, and you'll continue to do that work. And thank you so much, Dr. Imran Akbar, for the work that you've done with MedGlobal. I assume you're going to be going back at some point. Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, this is really a passion of mine, and I plan to continue to do this to grow the organization. And we already have plans to go to you know several other countries. So this year we plan to go to um, Lebanon, to Jordan, to Sierra Leone, in addition to Yemen and the Rohingya and other places. What can people do if they want to support your organization and the work that you're doing? Um, keep us in their prayer and also uh, donate to www.medglobal.org. Thank you both. Thank you. After the break, our film contributor Milo Stalik will sit down with us to talk about the new Ethan Hawke film, First Reform, that deals with obsession, the end of the world, environmentalism, everything. It's critically acclaimed. Can't wait to talk about it. This is WBEZ. This is Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum, in for Jerome McDonald. In director Paul Schrader's new film, First Reformed, Ethan Hawke stars as a pastor and former military chaplain named Ernst Toller, who is struggling with the death of his own son, and he's incur- who he encouraged to enlist. Here's a clip from the movie. Reverend Toller? Yes, Mary? You must come over. You must come over now. Explosives. She was becoming someone I didn't know. Opportunistic diseases, anarchy, martial law. You will live to see this. She had no idea that he was thinking of. No. I'm so frightened. You think that 
what we did together was a sin. I've seen enough real sin to know the difference. You didn't tell the police, right? Take a look at your own life before you criticize others. These are frightening times. We have to be patient. Well, somebody has to do something. Are you So that's from the trailer, and what you'll get from that is that the pastor encounters an environmentalist who's, a, let's say, a little bit obsessive and zealous, and it changes and uproots the community. Millis, tell us a little bit yeah, more about he, the film. He is, uh, uh, I mean, the situation is Ethan Hawke plays this pastor of a very famous landmark church, which is about to uh, celebrate uh, its 250th anniversary, uh, to be reconsecrated. Um, he, uh, and there's the background that, 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 which you talked about, about his own son having died in, uh, in, uh, conflict. And then he encounters one of the parishioners, uh, uh, who is Mary, she's 20 weeks pregnant. And then her husband, Philip, who is a radical environmentalist and who was in fact in prison in Canada. So that's the situation that we're confronted with. It's kind of a triangle. Um, it's Paul Schrader's probably most authentic auteur film. In a way, it's something that we all complain about, saying that films like this are not possible anymore. So here is a film which became possible, a very personal film which goes back to Paul Schrader's own beginnings as someone who grew up in a very strict Dutch Calvinist community in Michigan. Uh, he didn't see a film, in fact, until he was 17 years old. He wrote a book when he was 24, which is now being republished, which is called Transcendental Film. It's a study of Bressot, Dreyer, and Ozu, three filmmakers who have, in, you could say about them, that spirituality and the whole question of spirit and faith are at the root of their films. Absolutely, Milos. And, one of, and this is also, Paul Schrader, also involved with Taxi Driver, right. if I'm not mistaken. And so... And the, Raging Bull. Raging Bull. So these movies that have to do, or these characters that have to, that come into this moment of um, crises, this moment of self-reflection, sort of this, this existential angst, is something that runs through the current of his films. And this character, Ethan Hawke, certainly plays it well, according to critics. Yes, absolutely. And, and uh, it's, 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 a, it's a film which really works on many multiple levels because on one hand, it's a character study. It's a character study of this, uh, of Ethan Hawke or Ernst Toller, uh, the reverend. On the other, it's, it's, a, it's a discussion of the role of the church. I mean, what is faith in terms of organized religion? Because the very friendly, I guess you could call him minder or sponsor mm. of uh, Reverend Toller is this uh, a, a guy, Reverend uh, uh, Jeffers, who runs an organization called Abundant Life, a very different kind of church. Played uh, by Cedric the Entertainer. Yeah, played very well by Cedric the Entertainer, which is a modern megachurch. I mean, mm. very, very, very successful, whereas uh, Ethan Hawke is managing the, or, or, or running this church, which is historic, was involved in the Underground Railroad, um, but almost no attendance, and he's a very kind of a boring preacher. So there are all of these issues that are going on, and that's how the, so the film also contrasts the role of faith versus organized religion. Uh, his own question and questioning of what faith is for him and what, what would God do is always the, the question that he's confronted confronted with as he enters this whole world of the environmentalism and how we are destroying the planet. Milos Stalik is our film contributor. You're listening to WBEZ's Worldview. I'm Steve Bynum in for Jerome McDonald. And we're talking about the Ethan Hawke film First Reformed. And in a few minutes, the Fulcrum Point Music New Music, music Project will be on to give us a little taste of what they call, quote unquote, intuitive music. So Milos, I want to broaden the conversation out because this film put me in the mindset of a number of films, some of our favorites. And in the last decade and a half, you and I have had personal conversations about these films that deal with apocalyptic obsession or films that take deep dives into the purpose of human existence. I think of Lon von Trier's Melancholia. I think of Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life, um, a film from 40 years ago, one of my personal favorites, Aguirre, The Wrath of God by uh, Werner Herzog, which takes this journey down a river and it deals with issues of inequality and colonialism and obsession and the end of, and such and so what do you think is what do you think's behind this trend of these movies that 
have sort of these spiritual, religious, apocalyptic, existential themes over the last decade or so especially? What do you feel is in the, in the culture and society? Well, look, I mean, religion has always been a part of cinema. For me, religion is cinema. You could say that walking into a cinema is walking into a church. It's the same kind right. of relationship, right. you know, a dark space. You're listening. You're, somebody is talking at you. You have a connection. You're searching for some kind of meaning it's in some way. It may be entertainment, but meaning could be there. And you could also make the case that quite a few filmmakers going back to the beginning of cinema have always introduced or dealt with these issues of the spirit of the meaning of life mm. what defines a human being and what is and that is the spirit you can look at the work of uh, Ingmar Bergman certainly all of the, the the situations in his films in which man is searching for meaning and arguing with God you can look at uh, a more recent film like a film called Silent Light by Carlos Regadas the Mexican filmmaker a brilliant film which is set in the Mennonite community of Mexico you can look over uh, look at the work of Hermano Omi, a film filmmaker who just died, is a great Italian post-neorealist, film, films like Tree of the Wooden Clocks, and then of course the films that Schrader himself was exactly. uh, uh, yes. interested mm -hmm. in, Bressol, the Dardenne Brothers, uh, Dreyer, you know, and all of, Day of films like Day of Wrath, Passion of Joan of Arc. So I would say that film is a very robust medium for examining those kinds of issues and it's really great that Schrader was able to find a way and it's interesting how he found it because after having had a lot of misses working on the fringes of the commercial industry he had dinner with Pavel Pavlikowski the, the Polish director of uh, Ida a more recent film called uh, Cold War, which was just in, in Cannes, who said to him, uh, Pawlikowski said, I don't want to stay in Hollywood. I'm going to go back to Poland because I know that if I make a film for $2 million in Poland, I will get the money and I will be left alone. <laughs> and that was yeah. worth it to him. But yeah. that was a yeah. teaching moment for Schrader, who then said, I will make, I, I can do the same thing. And so he managed to put the money together. He was left alone. And he came up with a kind of film that we don't see anymore. And I will say about this, that there were six, I went to a commercial screening, there were six people in the theater. Mm. The, 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 the film was preceded by previews for nothing else but car crashes, violence, shootings, violence. So when people complain that there is nothing to see, then there's a disconnect between the films that they will, that they, that they actually, audiences actually support. So maybe this is just my perception. Um, when I look at a film like First Reformed, and I, I, I sense that there's more of a comfort in Hollywood with diving into s direct sort of um, tangible um, spiritual themes and topics, uh, internal themes mm -hmm. and topics, talking about organized religion and not necessarily always doing it from a cynical point of view perspective. When you look at an issue like the environment, the environment for a lot of people, especially who listen to this radio station, who aren't necessarily religious or are more agnostic, the environment is more of a spiritual topic. It is it, because it's about protecting the earth. It is about protecting this planet that gives us life and our source of life. And when environmentalists, especially people who are passionate about the environment, talk about this topic, they do speak of it in spiritual terms. Right. Right, exactly, absolutely, and and that's a, a point well made in the film, you know, because there's also the man who funds the church and funds uh, funds uh, Reverend Jeffers Church is a big industrialist, big polluter in in the in the uh, energy business. So you see the effects of, of of pollution, and that central issue is what are we doing to protect the earth, which was given to us as a gift, as that we are in some way responsible for, how does that affect then our living some kind of a spiritual life and, and maintaining our spiritual life as a human being? Milos Dalek is our film contributor. We're talking about the film First Reformed and similar trends in filmmaking. In a few minutes, we'll have the Fulcrum Point New Music Project 
with a live performance in our Jim and K Maybe Performance Studio. So Milos, Milos, there were a number of themes and hard questions that this film asked. Can we kind of talk a couple of minutes about some of those other themes? Yeah, I mean, so there's the, you know, the obviously environmental destruction. There's guilt, the guilt that this pastor feels because he pushed his son to the military. There's his own failed marriage in he, which he failed to uh, to connect to his to, to his wife now ex-wife right. who is still present within who blames the him who, for their son's death who, right who blames him for his son's death then there is his own way of how his how is he as a steward of god performing and and existing and this comes and then there, there is a and i'm going to give the plot away but there is a redemptive moment mm. or redemptive threat through mm. this character of mary which ends up in this uh a really beautiful scene, first of all, of suffering and, and how, does suffering lead to the kind of purification that you really connect to your own spirituality? Played by Amanda Seyfried of big love fame. Right. And then the character of Mary, which, which, in which ends with what I would say is one of the most beautifully shot screen kisses in cinema. And so do you think the character being named Mary was a coincidence? No, I think it was very intentional, just like the character of Ernst Toller was not a coincidence. Ernst Toller was an actual name of a German expressionist dramatist who ended up committing suicide in, in New York. So there's a, also a reference there. You could go, get at this film by pulling out all these references to Dreyer, to, to other, to other uh, filmmakers. You can just leave that aside and it will make no difference. I mean, there's two ways of approach it. It really works as a film all on its own without having all of this, these references walking into it, even though that they are there. So, Milos, this film has gotten rave reviews across the board. Rotten Tomatoes gave it 98%. So talk about um, Ethan Hawke's performance. He's very good. I mean, it's it's he's he's not afraid to be a middle-aged man. He's, uh, as an actor, he's not trying to be and not trying to uh, play a role that he's not suited suited for. He obviously had a good, I think he had a good relationship with Schrader. I mean, because it really shows that he's comfortable in, in the role and really trying to, to, to explore it. He's not afraid to go where this is leading him. In some ways, there's a level of austerity to that role when he begins it. And there's a level of austerity to the movie because it's shot in a very classical 137 format. Almost a square. Almost right. a square. Yeah. So in a way that, 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 that austerity, which goes back again to Bresson and this, this whole transcendental idea of paring down, of achieving some level of purity in film is certainly there visually and it's also there in his performance. It's very controlled but very rooted at the same time. So, Milo, usually a lot of times, I should say, when a director goes for a very aggressively for these big topics and these big sort of philosophical points, sometimes they overshoot, sometimes they don't go far enough, and then sometimes they hit the sweet spot. Where do you think Schrader landed what, on this one? What makes it work is that there is the conceit of the pastor of the Reverend Toller writing his diary, and that is read over the soundtrack by him. It is very beautifully written, and mm. this, this film really began with Schrader as a writer, which he is a very, very good film writer, obviously having written Mean Streets um, uh, and uh, uh, Raging Bull, among, uh, Last Temptation of Christ, among other films. Uh, that writing and that, that beauty of the language really carries it through and brings us to the internal struggle which Reverend Toller is experiencing. So it's well-written, it's well-acted, and you recommend it, it seems like. Well, I mean, it's memorable. It's a film that you're going to think about, and it's a film that you should think about, and it's probably a film that you should see a second time, and that's, that makes it a classic, not a film that you take in and throw out with the uh, um, dinner after dinner garbage. It's a film that stays with you for life. Very good. Milos Stalik is our film reviewer, and he is the director at Facet Chicago, who recommends the film First Reform, starring Ethan Hawke. Thank you so much, Milos. Thank you, Steve. So I'm going to switch studios. I'm going to jump over to the performance studio and we're going to have some what's called intuitive music by Fulcrum Point Music Project. So stay tuned for that. I'm Steve Bynum and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum, in for Jerome McDonald. And it's time for a weekend passport where we give you the insights on how to have an international weekend right here in Chicago. And my friend Nari Safavi is here with us, as he is every Friday. Good day, Steve. It's great to be here again. So, Nari, take us around the world. Where are we going first? Well, we are going first. Uh, first and foremost, we're going on a healing project, intuitive music, a collaborative expressionism, a fulcrum point, healing and unity through improvisation. And this will take us all over the world with influences, with musicians from all over the world, Fulcrum Point, Steve Burns, Kahil Alzabar, who is really a world citizen and a globally renowned artist from Chicago. So we're doing a, a lot of these different types of things through a live performance today, but also wanted to let you know that there is a physical fest going on this weekend now, in Chicago. what does that mean, physical fest? The physical fest is basically sort of a, a, is that a festival. Is exercising? Ex- Are we doing gymnastics no, or what? It's really theater that's supposed to be very physical and almost comically physical. And uh, it, it, there's globally uh, a group, uh, globally sourced groups mm-hmm. of people from Spain, from England, coming over. And it's going to be going on for two weeks. It's happening June 1st through 9th. Uh, opening night is tonight at Stage 73, one, uh, 1225 West Belmont. So Stage 773 premieres tonight and exactly. it runs through the night. Yeah, check and out their website and you'll get a better idea of what, what's going on. There will be, I think, a group from England performing tonight, England and Spain. And there's some, another group from Denmark. There's also a, a Japan festival going on in Chicago this weekend, Saturday from 2 to 10 p.m. This Japan festival is in Arlington Heights. If it's anything like the ones from previous years, it's a family-oriented thing. There is a lot of family stuff, but there's also a great deal of Japanese art, music, and some sake. Okay, sounds wonderful. Thank you so much, Nari. I'm really looking forward to this because we're going. We have with us the Fulcrum Point New Music Project. Actually, and I'm not ashamed to say it, uh, one of my favorite um, groups and organizations doing great work. And uh, my friend Stephen Burns is here with us once again. It's really good to see you, Stephen. Thank you. It's great to be back with you, Steve. It's a, a real pleasure also to welcome to uh, Chicago Marcus Stockhausen and and Florian Weber, um, and my dear colleague uh, Kahil Zabar. We're putting together this you know international interracial intercultural conversation of healing through musical art so i want to read the entire title the subtitle intuitive music a collaborative expression of healing and unity through improvisation now what do you mean by that well it's a, it is a way of connecting to the heart and soul of uh, human nature that transcends culture, transcends race, it transcends gender, and, mm. and through um, mm. spontaneously listening to each other and responding um, with our heartfelt expression of music, uh, we are able to welcome the audience and the whole community into this shared uh, value that we will uh, make, uh, will express with the music, and then uh, I'm looking forward to having a conversation with, with uh, you and Cahill and going forward. Well, I'll tell you what, let's not waste any time. Let's get to it. So what are we going to hear? So this is, um, intuitive music is, is music that is fully improvised with uh, or without rules. And uh, mm. we're going to be listening to Cahil on the Mbiro or the Kalimba. And we will respond with um, what he sets up. And then uh, Marcus and I will be part of the, the flow and, and Florian will be creating harmony. So in other words, Steve's going to run over to his microphone so he can play for us. So as you go ahead. So we're going to take this journey together. We're going to do some exploration. We don't know where this is going. And uh, we're going to figure it out as we go along. So thank you so much, Stephen Burns, and all of you for being here. And now you're about to hear Falcon Point New Music Project.
Bravo. Bravo. Wow. An amazing, amazing. Steve. Fulcrum Point. Steven. Yeah. If you if I could make Steven. things up like that, <laughs> that would be something. You know, it and it's um it's coming from such a, a, a profound place of of um respect and you know, it's an interesting combination, and it's, these are words that are hardly ever put together just in terms of respect and pride. But it's also a, a sense of honoring a, a, several traditions. I mean, coming out of classical, coming out of African, coming out of jazz, coming out of free improv. Um, this is a, a way of communicating that it, um, it's, it's really special. I, I feel very honored to, to uh, be a, a friend and partner with uh, Kahil Zabar in this endeavor. No. Well, I uh, actually I was going to ask a question from Cahill that uh, you know he seems to you're a very well-traveled musician, you're very much uh, renowned around the world, participate in all these festivals. How much do you feel the inspirations that you get globally at your ability to improvise, especially when it comes to a healing kind of an end goal that we're talking about? Yes, Nari. I think uh, even beyond music. Our greater understanding of the nuances within character, within culture, within communities, and then relating it to the idea of organized sound in terms of music, the vibrational frequencies, if we as communities could connect to that in a more deliberate kind of way, it would definitely be an enhancement to uh, the current state of humanity. Mm. Mm. Wow, yeah. Wow. You know, uh, Stephen, you and I have had numerous conversations about uh, terms like inclusion and diversity. And Khalil, I had the honor and privilege of meeting you a few months ago at a concert. I mean, you really moved me with your words and your music. Uh, And so, Stephen, can you talk a little bit about how the terms like diversity, inclusion and um, collaboration, how that fits into the mission of Fulcrum Point and how you want to have a real, sincere, authentic dialogue about these words. Well, it has to do with bringing really the positive energy of this creative process to that leverage point, to that Fulcrum Point, so that we're actually able to move our culture forward and, and with, uh, with kindness and dignity to um, really bring everybody to the table. And, you know, the, the traditional way of looking at hierarchical forms of art and of communication are clearly breaking down and falling apart in front of our eyes. And so what I feel is really, really essential is to, is to bring together dear friends and, and um, incredibly heartfelt musicians who can express that. And then, you know, the other idea of the fulcrum point is that, you know, sometimes the opposites attract. Mm. And, you know, what looks like a, a, uh, a strange combination actually turns out to be a very fruitful hybrid. And I think it's the more we look at these things as, as fruitful hybrids, um, then we have an opportunity to, to create the art future, the future of art music in, in such a way that um, it, it welcomes everybody to the table, whether it is a you know, conservatory trained you know, classical kind of composer or an, an intuitive improviser that are coming out of um, you know, various cultures from around the world. And, and that's where you know, we've brought together, whether it's West African or South Asian um, or East Asian, uh, many, many, many musicians um, in celebrating that. Now, just to talk a little bit more about the performance, it's tonight at 7 p.m. at the Promontory, mm. uh, 5311 South Lake. That's in Hyde Park. Really nice, intimate um, venue. And uh, you've got a few more artists. We just have about four or five here now, but you've got about 10, right? Right. Yeah, there's good food at the Promontory, too. It's really a wonderful hang. Um, <laughs> yeah, we have you know our featured artists with Mar- Marcus Stockhausen and, and uh, David Murray, a great, great legendary saxophone player who flew in from Austria yesterday to join us, um, as well as um, you know Florian Weber and um, local artists, um, Andy Baker, who was head of jazz studies at, U- at at UIC, and um, Ryan Packard, who's this really extraordinary uh, experimental guy. He t- plays accordion, percussion, vibraphones, and um, he'll be bringing some electronics t- tonight as well. And um, rounding out the crew is, is James Sanders, who's a phenomenal jazz and Latin violinist. And so this interesting combination of you know these horns and strings. Luke Stewart flew in from D.C. to be with us, and it's going to be really a, a whole lot of fun. So please come join us. Wonderful. Marcus Stockhausen, Florian Weber, Cahill Elzabar, 
and Stephen Burns, who is the artistic director at Fulcrum Point. Thank you so much. You can hear this and more music like this tonight at the Promontory at 5311 South Lake Park. Thank you so much. On Monday, we're going to talk about Canada from the vantage point in this U.S.-Canada trade situation, and so the, um, the Prime Minister of Canada wrote some very incendiary remarks, and so we're going to talk about that more, more on Worldview. So Worldview is produced by me, Julian Haida, thanks to Galilee Abdullah, Anna Waters for production assistance, Mike Gilmore, and Colin Ashmead Bobbitt for engineering today. Nari, really good to see you. It was great to be here again. Fulcrum Point's going to take us out. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.